0: In this episode, we're going to feature an interview with Stephanie Gray-Connors, along with Bishop Joseph Strickland and Dr. Stacey Tresenkos. Dr. Tresenkos and Bishop Strickland will be talking with Stephanie about her new book, Conceived by Science, thinking carefully and compassionately about infertility and IVF. During the conversation... The three of them will discuss why the church teaches that in vitro fertilization should not be used and how we can compassionately have a dialogue with people who struggle,
1: in particular with infertility. So I hope you enjoy this discussion. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls, instill in our hearts the zeal of Saint Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son Jesus Christ our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever, Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Stephanie, it's great to have you with us to uh, talk about your new book, um, Infertility and IVF. And uh, just I thank you again for the great ways you support exactly the work that is talked about in the St. Philip uh, Institute prayer to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So thank you for joining us. I'm glad to have Dr. Stacy Tresenkos with us again to talk about very important things that hopefully can guide people in the light of Christ.
0: Well, thanks for having me on.
1: Dr. Stacy, any uh Comments to start with, or you want to just jump into the book?
2: Well, I just echo um, that it's wonderful to be able to sit down and talk with you. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I appreciate the book you wrote, Conceived by Science, um, thinking carefully and and compassionately about infertility and IVF, because I, I appreciate that you added that subtitle in there, thinking compassionately. Uh, it's a tough issue for people to talk about and and I'm thankful for your book and your expertise here to help us know how to talk to people about this and stand up for the truth. Mm. Well, I'm grateful for that
0: and you know, I really began to see over time in my pro-life work that there was a lack of formation on the particular issue of reproductive technology specifically in vitro fertilization, but at the same time to adequately educate people on that one has to be sensitive to the great cross of infertility. And that's indeed, as you mentioned, that subtitle, Thinking Compassionately, is I wanted to be able to communicate truth and love uh, to those who are really walking that painful journey of infertility, as well as others.
1: And really, you're you're getting into it, Stephanie, but I always like to know from an author what inspired the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like you've pretty much already told us that, that lack of catechesis, really.
0: That lack of catechesis was something I was becoming aware of through my pro-life speaking. Uh, I began working full-time in the pro-life movement when I was 21. I'm now 41. So it's been two decades of being a pro-life apologist, traveling around the world, speaking and debating on the topic of abortion. And about six years ago or so, I added into my repertoire, you could say, equipping people how to think uh, persuasively and... From a pro-life perspective on the topic of uh, assisted suicide so i went from one end of life to the other end of life and then it was in the last couple years that as audience members would ask me what do you think about in vitro fertilization what about frozen embryos what should we do with frozen embryos i realized as i was answering people's questions on that topic that there was this need that needed to be addressed and so since you could say my expertise is apologetics, teaching people how to think winsomely, communicate persuasively on these bioethical issues, I thought, okay, I'm going to take my approach of question asking and storytelling that I have applied to abortion and assisted suicide, and now I'm going to apply it to this topic of in vitro fertilization.
1: Great. Um, and I echo what Dr. Stacy said about the, the subtitle. And what that emphasizes to me, and I think it's something that we, we learn more and more with all the life issues, is that every person we're communicating with, every person that may watch this podcast along the way, is precious in the eyes of God. And this isn't about condemning anyone or or pushing aside those who have done this or haven't done that, but it's getting the truth to everyone in a in a compassionate way that's the greatest compassion is to share the truth and i think that that your subtitle on this book of being careful and being really aware of the deep hurts and concerns and issues that people are it goes to the very heart of couples and families of women of mothers and fathers and to be sensitive to all of that and to really transmit to people, because again, in the abortion world, I think we're learning as a church and as those who are pro-life that the woman who has a child in her womb is just as precious as the child whose life we're trying to protect. Certainly, there are various levels of um, innocence and various levels of inability to act of of weakness, you might say, or, or just lack of control that we always have to keep in awareness. But I think that we just have to emphasize that, that anyone, any man or woman that picks up this book to read it is precious before God. And that doesn't cease. No matter what we do, no matter how we've wandered, The Lord is always calling us back in his love. And I think we have to approach these sensitive topics in that sort of spirit and attitude. So thank you.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm.
0: you're you're welcome. And, you know, I would say that each one of us is unrepeatable and irreplaceable. And as I began to address this topic with audiences, I was being asked about IVF from people who were conceived that way. And I realized if I provide a moral critique of a certain method of coming into existence, then the individual who came into existence that way might feel it's an attack on them, Mm -hmm. that that means there's a moral critique on their very existence, should they not be here. And so to balance the head and the heart and to be able to communicate, I can object to how someone came into existence without objecting to who came into existence, that regardless of whether someone was conceived by lust or the violence of rape or love or technology, regardless of how someone was conceived, in all four of those cases, if you have an unrepeatable, irreplaceable individual, then we celebrate them, even if we don't always celebrate how they came to be.
1: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely.
2: So just to get right down to the question, why is IVF so wrong? So medically speaking, we have all this medical technology uh, that artificially we We use in artificial ways to heal our bodies. if um, if a couple has a problem and they can't conceive naturally, what's so wrong about artificially doing it in a lab to achieve the end of conceiving a child? what What is the basis of this argument?
0: Yeah, great question. So I would say it comes down to the fact that although we can use technology, It's a means to an end, and sometimes technology is good, but sometimes it's bad. We see that with our use of the internet. You can use the internet to connect with family members overseas to, you know, sell a car online, or you could use the internet for uh, looking at pornography. And we would say, whoa, not all those things are equal. There's a technology that's sometimes used for good, sometimes used for bad. So the same is true with medical devices or surgeries or interventions that are medical in nature. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. And the way we determine that is we look at, for example, is that intervention correcting an underlying problem and restoring the body to how God designed it to function? And the answer with IVF is it doesn't do that. IVF doesn't correct someone's underlying infertility, but rather it overrides the problem and creates a new way of bringing human beings into existence and so then we have to ask how did god our creator design human beings to come into existence and the way he designed that was as a fruit of sexual intimacy that because we are subjects and not objects we shouldn't come into existence the way objects do and objects are things that are manufactured you have an assembly line at a car plant uh but because the human person is not an object we shouldn't be manufactured and the problem with ibf is it manufactures in a sense the human person like in a sense an assembly line where where someone's putting parts together and that someone isn't part of the marriage covenant it's not the husband and wife but their child is coming into existence at the hands of a stranger, someone who's not part of that intimate, private, covenantal relationship. Um, there's certainly other problems with IVF, which is actually the first part of my book, but I think if we really want to get to the heart of it, human beings shouldn't be manufactured. Uh, you know, one, one other point I'll make before I bounce it back to you is, if we look at the scriptures where we have that, that famous passage where Jesus turns over the table, tables in the temple, um, he says to, to the you know, viewing audience, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And Jesus saw the temple, the dwelling place of God, uh, being used for purposes outside of its main, outside of its actual purpose. And so I would say that IVF, because we are all temples of the Holy Spirit, we in, in a sense by being people who bear God's image are are living temples, that we shouldn't turn our temples into a marketplace. And as we'll unpack, IVF does that. It turns the the temple of God in the human form into a marketplace.
1: Really, Stephanie, I I haven't heard it put that way. And I think that's excellent because it really does get down to just the very, very understandable distinction that human beings are not products to be manufactured and that the the IVF uh, reality is... There are too many elements of it's almost like you're taking the component parts and we're putting them together instead of the act of love through God's grace, putting them together. So I think that's an excellent way for even people who lack any faith to, to understand that there's something different about the human person and to get into a world where it's very close to, if not actually just being manufactured, um, we have to, to really be careful about that and, and call out the, the wrong steps that are involved in that. So thank you.
0: Well, you're welcome. And um, I, I just think it's so important for people to realize that when it comes to the way God designed for human beings to come into existence, there's what I write in my book, a perspective of a hands-on and hands-off. And by that, I mean, a couple can learn their fertility cycles. They can learn uh, when the woman is most fertile. And if they discover there's a problem, then they can have truly corrective surgeries done. If she has blocked fallopian tubes, you can unblock those fallopian tubes. You know, If she's not ovulating, you can take medicine so that she ovulates. But as much as you can create an ideal set of circumstances where it is likely for a couple to conceive, when they enter into sexual intimacy, Even with all those factors lined up, there's that hands-off element where the couple still doesn't know at the end of the day, will they actually conceive in that act of intimacy? And if they do, which sperm, which egg, at what moment, for example, will they conceive? I've I've, I've jokingly said I wanna write a book called I Got Pregnant Doing the Dishes. And (laughs) by that I mean, if a couple has sex, let's say on Monday night, and no egg has yet ovulated in the woman's body. Although sperm are alive in her body, they've yet to fertilize an egg. And it could be outside the act of sexual intimacy the following morning when the husband's at work and and the wife is doing the dishes at home, that suddenly she ovulates and egg is there and, and sperm meets egg and boom, you have new life. But the point is there is a receptive nature to that. They can increase the odds of getting pregnant, but they're not forcing someone into existence. Whereas IVF, is forcing and manufacturing and producing in a very commodification mindset that's very different from the receptive aspect of sexual intimacy
2: yeah the gift and mystery of life i mean i've for your next book, I've, I've said that to people before, you know, talking about evolution and nobody knows exactly when Adam and Eve began to exist or how they began to exist. And I've said before, it's true for all of us. There's not a single one of us alive who does, who knows that exact moment we popped into existence. That's something God alone knows. Even the mother doesn't know it. She may know it first, but she doesn't know it in that first moment because it happens at a moment that only god knows and the mother may know a few weeks later or a few days later she's practicing nfp um but it's a beautiful mystery that that in that moment we are so loved by god unconditionally loved by god in those quiet dark moments in our mother's womb when nobody else knows we're there but god and really and, and Steph, I- go ahead Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say, and there's something,
0: <laughs> you know, that um, I think is beautiful about the mystery, about the fact that it's, that our very beginnings are shrouded, they are hidden, there's secrecy, um, and mystery, and, and I liken mm-hmm. it in my book to my experience of the Byzantine liturgy, the Eastern Rite, and I first experienced the Ukrainian Catholic liturgy in um, uh, many years ago now, and was blown away by the sense of the sacred, this otherworldly experience of the divine liturgy. And, you know, that they have the iconoclast that only the priests and certain other um, members of the clergy can can go back behind, because it's the holy of holies. Just as we know from from Jewish tradition, there's this sacred element where certain things are off-limit or or not to be normal and casual and common and sexual intimacy is like that and unfortunately IVF isn't. But Your Grace, you were going to say something, so please. Yeah, and,
1: and I'm, I'm so glad you brought up that term, iconostasis, because that screen, we need so deeply, we need mystery, we need the sacred, and life is where the greatest mystery is from that first moment of conception the mystery as as you've gone into the end of life issues, the mystery of when the soul leaves the body, science can't tell us. And we have to embrace that reality as mm-hmm. well. Yep. And what I wanted to specific, before you brought in the iconostasis and that mm-hmm. took me on another direction, what I think is beautiful about what, you're, what you've just said, technology and the study of all of this I mean, a hundred years ago, we didn't know nearly as much about how this happens. It's still shrouded in mystery and really always will be to some extent. Um, But I think that so many times the church has seen people of faith are seen as sort of anti-science. And that is, I know the, the wonderful doctor sitting next to me is... Is trying to proclaim to the world how that is simply not true. And what occurs to me is through science, we know the, how this works in, in very clear detail in ways that we didn't know 100 years ago um, and even 50 years ago. We continue to learn exactly the precise things that have to take place for a new person to come to be and then ultimately to be born. We can use that knowledge like you were talking about with the Internet. Here we are having a podcast talking about the sanctity of life. We could also have a podcast about evil things or about destructive things. So an instrument can be used in different ways. One of the issues that we have in the world is the whole issue of contraception of interference in that process preventing trying to prevent a, a procreation from happening and that with the IVF it's sort of on the other side trying to make it happen whether it's God's plan or not and I think that as people of faith and really for all humanity the more we can help people to see that we've got to look at God's plan we've got to look at the mystery but that really just struck me as you were talking about the the using technology for IVF and bringing that that sperm and that egg together. We also use technology to prevent the conception of a child. Yep. Interfering on either side of that is where we get off track as human beings. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. It's this this attitude of are we working with nature? Um, and where nature isn't working correctly, are we restoring the body to its healthy function? uh, Or are we replacing that um, and suppressing that? So in the case of contraception, you're suppressing the natural, healthy function of the body, which is fertility. In the case of IVF, um, you're not actually correcting the problem, which is infertility. Uh, and instead of following the designs for how we ought to be received into existence through a communion of persons, you're creating a new method of bringing someone into existence that involves division and separation of persons. You know, one of the things that I make I say is that God made sex necessary for how humans were to come into existence. And IVF makes sex entirely unnecessary. You don't need any sex to happen for IVF to occur. Whereas sex is to be a communion of persons with a husband and wife, and then the communion of persons between the mother and child, the child beginning her life beneath the mother's heart. With IVF, the man goes off on his own, typically masturbates. The woman could go without her husband to the clinic and have her eggs retrieved. And you have separation, no communion then the child comes into existence at the hands of a stranger once again separated from the father separated from the mother so one divides
2: and the other unites stephanie hard so pushing this because i've been in conversations like this and i'm sometimes stumped I'm, i'm not sure what to say and i know you've got an answer for this is why i'm asking you say you've got a couple sitting in front of you and maybe there's a couple sitting with you and their child is sitting there too and the couple's older, the child's a young adult. You know what I'm gonna say, don't you? And and the couple says, yeah, we, we used IVF and we didn't have a problem with it. We know exactly all the things you're explaining. Our love withstood all of that. We were still united as a couple. We did what we needed to do to have our beautiful child. The child who's now a young adult is sitting right next to him and the child says, I know I came into existence this way, but my mother and father loved me my whole life. They've raised me. We're a happy family. If it weren't for IVF, we wouldn't all be here right now as a family. What do you say to that? Because I know there's relativism there, but what do you say to that? Yeah, great question. So. Uh, there's certainly a lot that can be said. The challenge in that
0: particular situation is balancing the head and the heart and, mm-hmm. and treading the waters carefully insofar so far as being sensitive to not crush the spirit of the child conceived so that they know that they're valuable and loved and good and willed in God's eyes, even if God didn't will the sin that brought about that particular child. Um, And that uh, the couple may have had good intentions and motivations, even though their end result uh, of, of choosing IVF was not good and ethical. So I would at first validate that, which I could. So I would say, you know, it's clear that you love each other. I would never question that. And I'm glad to see that. Um, I also think it's, it's wonderful to see, um, just how loved your child is. And, and I would say how willed by God you are, you know, I would say looking to that individual and then I might even say, you know, you've shared a lot and I'll be honest with you, perhaps you've shared that much. Cause you know, I don't agree. And that puts us perhaps in a bit of an awkward situation because if I express my views, I don't want in any way for them to come across as somehow objecting to your very existence so do you want me to ask you some questions or share my thoughts or would you prefer to just share your experience without any feedback and so i would actually because it's so sensitive kind of propose it that way and let's say yeah no you don't agree i I really want to know i've never met someone like you (laughs) Maybe, maybe they'll say everyone i've spoken to says it's wonderful we've conceived our child by IVF. how could it possibly be wrong so then i would say okay well would you agree that uh you could have someone come into existence that is loved, but how they came into existence is problematic. And I would give an example of, let's say, uh, two college students that aren't married and um, Mm -hmm. have a one-night stand and they get pregnant. Can we celebrate their child, whether they raise the child or the child is adopted in a loving home? Can we celebrate the child Mm -hmm. without celebrating the way the child came to be? And I would see what they say. Now, if they're faith-based people, um, then hopefully they would give a concession there, okay, yeah, the couple shouldn't have had a one-night stand, but we value their child. I would say, well, that's what I would say about your child here. I value your child. And so any moral critique I would give about the IVF isn't a moral criticism Mm -hmm. of your child. Um, Then I would say, in terms of the fact that you undoubtedly love each other, would you agree with the ethical principle, the ends doesn't justify the means. And then we might need to give an example. And the one I give in my book is the male-female imbalance in China, that there are millions more men than women, because there has been a one-child policy in a culture that has preferred male children to female children. So for decades now, you have this imbalance so that there are some estimates saying 34 million more men than women. So the desire these men have for a wife is good. Would you agree with that? And they'll say, yes, of course it's good. And I would say now some of these men who desire wives, because it's hard to find a wife with this gender imbalance, Um, sadly, some of the men are pursuing human trafficking where they're hiring people to basically steal a woman to become their wife. Would you agree that their desire for a wife is good, but their method of finding a wife is wrong? And of course they're going to say, yes, the desire was good. The method was wrong. (laughs) So then I would say, okay, that's a simple illustration that you and I agree. The ends doesn't justify the means. So I would suggest, although the analogy involves two very different situations, the same thing um, the common thread, rather, is that the ends doesn't justify the means. And and it's very, um, you had a very good desire for a child, but that good desire does not mean just any method of fulfilling that
2: desire is ethical, as we see through the analogy. Mm-hmm. And you could probably, I think it's almost, I don't know if it's ever untrue. I, I think always, if there's IVF, there are other children conceived that are frozen, discarded, donated to science- uh, and, and to me, that's one of the most heartbreaking things there is when when the couple realizes what they've done, that they now have children who are frozen and they ha- and I've talked to people in the situation. They now have to make a decision what to do when they get it. It's too late because there are children in a freezer somewhere.
0: Absolutely. And that's one of the points I make early on in my book, because I feel it's almost an easier argument for the average person to accept in terms of why we should object to IVF. And so one of the points I make is that the very nature of IVF in terms of when it's almost always practiced is that it involves making many children Mm -hmm. and killing some in order to ultimately give birth to others and whether the some that are killed are killed right away, whether they are frozen and abandoned, whether they are frozen, thawed, and don't survive the thawing process and then ultimately die, whether they're killed because they're experimented on until they die, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether they are inserted in the mother's body implant, but then genetic testing is done on the pregnancy and it's determined the child has some anomaly the parents don't want, and they have what's called a selective reduction where they abort that particular child, but not the other IVF babies we see that there are children whose lives are jeopardized and in some cases directly killed in order to create other children. And so for people who are concerned about life, then we have to say, what about those children? Yeah,
1: yeah really, I think you you highlight and one of the challenges we face, even as we begin with people of faith that are just not well catechized, but beyond that, So much of what, I mean, like the um, ends just doesn't justify the means. Some of those philosophical underpinnings of human civilization are wobbly, if not just fallen over. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that it it just highlights the challenge that we face because people don't take a, a solid, ethical, philosophical approach to these questions. And... You know, so much of it is emotion driven, just like the Mm -hmm. imagine all the ways that that scenario that you described with a couple that had IVF and we probably all know Mm -hmm. people that fit into that scenario Mm -hmm. that can go bad in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to the sensitivity that you bring into this book um, is is absolutely necessary the bottom line for people who believe in the sanctity of life is that if there's a person there they are precious unrepeatable children of god and that's where uh, the ivf approach again it goes back to well you get 10 prototypes and select the the best one and that is again a manufacturing mindset than rather than allowing God our creator in his mysterious ways. I mean people have even argued I'm sure both of you as as mothers have have heard people talk about well how come then Mm -hmm. a lot of pregnancies end up in what we would call a spontaneous abortion a miscarriage. Well if God's so pro-life why does he allow that but in those situations it is God's plan unfolding rather than us intervening with Mm -hmm. really a totally different mindset
2: natural
0: death Mm, yeah and one of the points we want to make to people is there's a difference between dying naturally and being killed purposefully so someone who has a miscarriage their child and and I'm one such woman our our first baby Lele Latifikat is in heaven (laughs) and um you know, Lele died naturally through no fault of my own. She was deeply loved, deeply wanted and deeply grieved. Um, But the difference between that loss and the loss of children through, for example, IVF is with IVF, it's intentionally jeopardizing children's lives. It's intentionally ending the lives of some children, even if it's not all children. And so that, that fundamental difference is what should cause us to pause and say, ooh, that's why I should have a problem with IVF. But at the same time, we should still rightly grieve miscarriage because it's still tragic when we lose our loved ones. It's just that we are living in a broken world. Um, I have a whole chapter on Shalom and how, how we are meant to have restoration and wholeness as God designed things. And ultimately in the the world to come, we will have that. But as much as we can try to reweave shalom and restore things to how they ought to be, we're continually up against the fact that this is a broken world with imperfection. And as a result of sin, death entered the world. So we're all gonna have to experience death ourselves and the death of our loved ones, but that never gives us license to
2: inflict death. Well said. Well, thank you, Stephanie. Um, I appreciate the book that you wrote, and I appreciate all the work you do in apologetics and the pro-life movement. Well, thank you so much, and, and my real hope is that it's, it's a blessing, especially for the
0: people who struggle with that cross of infertility, and as, as Bishop mentioned, you know, there's a lot of emotions involved, and that's exactly why I started the book and ended the book with the stories of people for whom infertility has been their story and and what have my friends said when they let me interview them for this book and how have they lived with this cross and endured it and and found hope even amidst dark times so hopefully others who share that experience can find hope in the book as well
1: yeah absolutely thank you again Stephanie and and we pray that your book really <laughs> begins to open the door to some loving and caring but truth-filled conversations that help people navigate this broken world more according to God's plan and according to God's will. So thank you. And I think we're ready to uh, conclude with a blessing for both of you wonderful women, your families, and for all of those who will listen to this podcast. Almighty God, we ask your blessing. Help us to rejoice in the opportunity in the minds and the abilities you've given us to understand the mysteries, to appoint, and to always be ready to embrace further and deeper mystery, the mysteries of life, the mysteries of you as our God, who is love. Guide us always in your spirit. May the Immaculate Virgin Mary and all the saints intercede for us. And we ask this blessing in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.